Welcome to Season 6 of the Do More Good podcast. A selection of interviews with the movers and shakers from the third sector and beyond, telling the stories of people doing more good. I'm James, fundraiser at Blood Cancer UK, Marie Curie and now a Sue Rider. I'm also treasurer of the events fundraising group of the CIOF and Bexley Cross Country Champion 1994. And I'm Kenneth, proud fundraiser from my time working for Alzheimer's Research UK, now the charities lead at London Marathon Events where I get to work with thousands of brilliant and amazing charities, father of three football-obsessed children and co-host of the Do More Good podcast. You're listening to the Do More Good podcast. The Do More Good podcast. Uh, welcome to Do More Good podcast. Do More Good Good, do more. Do more good podcast. Do more good podcast. That's what you want me to say. Yeah. You're okay. listening to the Do More Good podcast. Okay, here we are, James. Episode number 79 of the Do More Good podcast. It's been a while. How are you doing? Very well, Kenneth. It has been a while. It has been a while. We've taken a bit of a, a an unplanned, but a sort of a summer holiday, haven't we? Yeah, we're yeah. recording this on the 11th of August. You've just got a, back from a week gallivanting around the UK, haven't you? Uh, you've got a lovely tan, <laughs> Thank from what you. I can see. Well, um, I've got a theory about this, actually. I've been to Scotland twice this year, and both times it's been glorious sunshine, blue skies. It's beautiful up there in the, the sunshine. Every time I talk to someone from Scotland, they say, no, it's raining, it's grey, <laughs> it's horrible. I reckon it is a kind of tropical paradise that is always beautiful, and they're just kind of keeping that quiet and keeping visitors away it's always well, lovely i'm yeah. sure the visitors are keeping away if they know you're going but um <laughs> yeah no sound like you had a had a great time but it's good to yeah. be back you've been back into work this week haven't you back into work this week dealing with you know the, the usual catching up you have a week <laughs> off and ha- like i don't know where it all comes from obviously the place didn't burn down it was fine everything went a lot smoother without me but there's just you know stuff to catch up on and then yeah. we're going away on holiday together aren't we well, we just we, we just realised, haven't we, that we're going to be both in Cornwall at the same time later this month. So we had a bit of an impromptu. We weren't planning on going away because we've been doing this house renovation for what seems like an eternity. But um, just some friends got in touch last week and said, we're going down to Cornwall. We've got a bit of space if you want to come down for a few days. So, yeah, we'll be down there at the same week. So hopefully yeah. we can arrange something. But um, we've got another gr- a brilliant guest, actually. Really looking forward to, to this one. And obviously on a, a little bit of a theme, we wanted to talk about... You know, since we last recorded, I think there's been a lot going on in terms of the sporting realm. Obviously, we were we were still in the Euros. I think last time we, we recorded, oh, we, were, um, we, were. we were getting excited. We were, we were dreaming, and, and of course, we've just uh, seen the end of an absolute brilliant Olympics, which has has just been fascinating and, and engaging. And the kids have loved it, and we've all we've all loved it. So, I want to just go back to your youth, James, and what is the one memory that maybe you have from football, or maybe it can have from any other sport? that just sticks in your mind from being a child that you think maybe inspired you or, or, or set yeah. you on your journey to sport in. I was thinking about kind of early football memories mm. and like that kind of being the last kid against the wall to be chosen and you know, waiting to, to join the team and that sort of thing. And then I remember winning a game. It was like a proper game of jumpers for goalposts, little tennis ball in the playground. And my team with no help for me won 67 nil. Wow. In one, one lunchtime. I mean, I don't see that in the record books, but it probably should be. I imagine we were multiple hat tricks scored in that that game. And then my first experience of kind of professional football was the kind of kids for a quid went to Selhurst Park, watched mm. Crystal Palace. Got him. My dad came down. He took me and my brother. Uh, that was kind of my first. Me- it must have. That was the Scotland that you expect. 
And he was pouring down with rain, horrible wind lashing through. And then obviously went and became an Arsenal fan, so it didn't work. But I remember that as being my kind of first one. How about you? Uh, I think I was thinking of something slightly, like I was trying to think about memories of amazing sport and occasions. And the one that always has stuck in my head was, was it 1990 World Cup? Uh, last 16 game versus Belgium. Gaza gets a free kick just inside the Belgium half in the last minute. Floats one to the back post. And do you remember the David Platt volley? I do, I do remember it. Remember I mean, well. I think yeah. that was just an absolutely spectacular goal to see as an yeah. eight or nine-year-old. And one that sticks in my memory. And, oh. I, you know, yeah. Glorious. Glorious. I remember 1989, I was an Arsenal fan, like 1989. And you can take your Man Cities. Like that, was a, that was a wonderful end of the season. But Mickey Thomas, wonderful. It was just beautiful. Me as an eight-year-old kid just... Dancing around, jumping on my dad, who is a Liverpool fan. It's just the the what, you know, greatest football moment of my life. So anyway, we, yeah. we could probably sit here all day and, and talk about this. Now, our guest is, is sitting there patiently. So we'll, we'll crack on and in, introduce him. So, look, following the recent excitement around the Euros and the exploits of the England football team, when the opportunity came up to combine our two passions, as we've just been talking about in terms of the charity sector and football, we were excited when the opportunity to interview this week's guest came up. Like most in the third sector, our guest has had an interesting journey to now being CEO of the Football Foundation. The foundation develop and invest in community sports facilities across England, helping the FA, Premier League, DCMS and Sport England deliver their collective ambition to ensure everyone has a great place to play. Now, our guest started his career with one of the big four consultancy firms before moving into the political realm and then into corporate communications. And then in 2009, he joined the FA, or the Football Association, as their strategy director and head of corporate affairs. Over a 10-year period, he gained a wealth of experience in strategy development, communications and corporate affairs. And he led the team that developed and delivered the pioneering Football Foundation Hubs investment model, which has already seen the development of major facilities in five cities across the country. He also chaired the Football Foundation Advisory Group in 2018, overseeing the investment strategy to ensure the foundation makes the greatest impact in the areas where it is needed most, tackling deprivation and inequality in the game. So in early 2020, I guess, took on the role of the CEO of the foundation and hasn't looked back. And over one of the most difficult economic periods in modern history, it's not been without its challenges, we're sure. So we're really pleased to hear more and welcome Robert Sullivan to the Do More Good podcast. How are you doing, Robert? Really well, really well. Thank you. That was uh, this introduction. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> it's always a bit strange to hear it back, isn't it? But thank you. I really enjoyed your football memories as well, Kenneth and James. They were were, were clearly of similar similar ages because they were very resonant for my youth as well. Those moments. Is there, is there anything else you'd throw into the mix around that time? Gosh, I, well, definitely Italia ninety. I think as a yeah. as a kind of a you know, and, and, and I remember. Telling my dad, don't worry, Stuart Pearce will never miss a penalty. Oh. It's fine. So that I don't think he's over that yet. And <laughs> and, I, and I guess as a you know your Arsenal moment, I guess my my equivalent is the um, as a Leeds fan was our was our promotion and then title winning team under Howard Wilkinson in late eighties, early nineties. So that for me was the kind of that was my seminal youth yeah. as a fan moment. Yeah, nice. And Robert, did you did you play a lot of sport as a youngster? Was sport always something that was kind of part of your part of your life? Huge amount, huge amount. I, although actually, football wasn't really my first first love as a participant, mainly because I wasn't that good at it, and I'm still not, not very good at it. I was more at home on a rugby pitch and a cricket pitch. 
you know, it's the every waking hour for me was 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 playing sport or watching sport or thinking about sport. And I was always very not not impressed when I went to a friend's house and they got the computer games out and I'd be itching to get outside in in the garden and throwing or kicking or hitting a ball in some somewhere or whatever. Yeah. And was that always the plan then? Like, so you obviously your career has changed, as Kenneth said, and you went through the kind of accountancy firm and in the political sphere. And then was it always the dream maybe to run a big sporting organisation as you as you now do? And um... no, no, I mean, I'm always really impressed with people who say they had a very specific career development plan because that was not the case for me at all. I think if I try and retrofit my career into some kind of clever development process, I'd say... There's two things I've always really liked. We've talked about sport. The other one is politics. And I've been really fortunate to develop a career that's intertwined sport and politics. And I th- as much as there has been a plan, it has been that I really enjoy working in and around those two sectors. And therefore, if I can identify roles that allow me to do that and enjoy that, that's been the plan, I guess. And I've been fortunate enough to do that. I think the kind of the more recent twist has been... I guess, a pivot to working for and with organisations that can deliver social purpose and social good. And I guess that's some of where this conversation will go. But I think, you know, having moved into the to the FA, you know, the FA is a very interesting organisation because it's, it's in part it's a very commercial beast that has a £400 million turnover, but it's also at heart a community development organisation that's trying to deliver really positive outcomes across England. And, and I think I kind of probably started at one end of that and gradually through my work in facility development moved to the other end of that in terms of the things that were interesting me and and you know getting my passion up for what I wanted to work in and around. Mm. So Robert you've just touched on it then about kind of your your, your career and it's and it's gone on an, on an interesting path as we say through consultancy to start with political realm and then on to the FA just kind of wondering back from them early days you know kind of leaving unit leaving university and kind of moving into consultancy did you have some kind of ambition of, of actually looking at the FA as a place to work? You spent a lot, a large part of your career there. Can you just talk us through how you started your career off and then ended up 10 or 12 years, was it, at the FA and obviously now onto the Football Foundation? Again, no, I, I can't divulge some secret path or plan. I, I, I went to work for Anderson Consulting out of university that turned into Accenture and I think it wasn't a period of my career actually I particularly enjoyed, but in retrospect, it's one that I got a huge amount of value from in terms of professional development. Mm-hmm. Um, I then moved into politics and that was a, a kind of a, a truce of passion and interest. And, and out of that, I started developing, I guess, what I'd call my core specialism, which is in the kind of corporate affairs strategy development space that came from the crossover, the political world and the consultancy and then I have to be really honest, the FA was just an opportune moment. It was an advert in the Sunday Times, I believe. I applied and um, was successful. I guess the build on that would be, of course, the subject of what the FA was and the sector was something I was passionate and interested about. So it, it piqued my interest more than anything else at the time. Mm. But it wasn't a kind of, I, I hadn't navigated towards it. So for kind of younger listeners who've maybe got a real passion, maybe following similar to you, that kind of social purpose route, but it's more kind of looking out for opportunities. And if we're going to like labour uh, an Olympics metaphor here, it's like the, cli- I saw the climbing, it's incredible, but they just yeah. shoot straight. It's less yeah. like that and more the sidewaysy up and downy climbing. I so you I'm just, you look for I'm... a grip, you move there and then you move somewhere else rather than having that ultimate goal and the kind of clear ladder straight up. 
I think having watched the bouldering, I think is what. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anything replicates that. That, that looks impossible to me. <laughs> um, I think the way you, yes you describe it is right, which is have a core. My, I think I guess if I had to give advice, I guess would be have a core skill set and expertise that you develop, which is generic to lots of different sectors, or and then look for the opportunities where you can apply that in a sector that really drives your passion. Mm. I guess that would be, that wasn't deliberate on my part, but that I guess if you look back, that would be the learning I think from it. Yeah. yeah. What you took. And you went on, as we talked on, you know, worked at the, at the FA for, for a good 10 years. You obviously knew of the foundation during your time there. I'm sure that you worked with the foundation. What was your view of the foundation during your time w- with the FA? Can you talk us about how those two organizations kind of interweave with each other? It's a really interesting question because, you know, the journey I've made in the last few years is I've gone from being the kind of funding partner, relationship manager, if you like. So the person at the FA who uh, manages the relationship with the Football Foundation, watches over the investment that the FA puts into the Football Foundation. Hmm. And that brings with it a whole set of issues and thoughts and perspective to being on the other side of the Fed, being the CEO, the person who's running the charitable foundation and has to deliver on your on the funding partner's behalf and obviously two sides of the same coin different perspectives so i think i think it's a it's an interesting challenge actually and i and i would say that it's definitely helped me coming into this new role to have the perspective of being a funding partner because i think mm-hmm. sometimes that can get missed and you know it's not it's not deliberate in any way but i think if you start with an, a really strong understanding of the strategic mission of your funding partners i think you're in a better place to tailor what you're trying to do to get you know to meet meet what they're what they're trying to do so i think that's been really valuable and i think the way we draw the line in terms of the responsibilities between the fa the premier league and the government and what the football foundation does has always been a moving face and there have been times when the football foundation has been asked to do more or has been asked to do less and i think it gives confidence to those partners that myself they have somebody who understands the different different elements of those responsibilities and can probably build trust quicker in in understanding their operational need as well so it's a fascinating relationship because you want to show the empathy and the support to the partners but you also for the sake of the fact that you're an independent charity that needs to to act and think and you know pursue its purpose in that in that way as well you've got to balance that side of the coin as well and have the ability to constructively push back to the partners and say actually for our purpose for our entity as an independent charity there isn't quite alignment here with your strategic needs as a funding partner for us therefore we need to have a conversation about that thing Mm. yeah and i guess your cv coming into that you talk there about levels of diplomacy like the political side of it your time with accenture your time with the fa there was that was the perfect cv for them right that's exactly what they were after Uh, well i think i would say that Football is a small p, very political industry. A lot of it is about power and relationships and positioning and influence and all, all of those things that you kind of as most through a life in politics. So um, I think you're right, James. Yes. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think some people might th- hear that and think I was being quite pejorative about the industry. I actually think it, it's just, it just is what it is. And, uh, mm. and I think when you understand that, I think you can probably move your way around the system more effectively. Yeah, mm. certainly. There's a big transfer going on today, or was it last night? Uh, that was all fun. I imagine this was a similar, similar sort of deal. Um, 
You talked there about the Football Foundation. Can you, for our listeners, maybe give us a bit of the history of the foundation, uh, maybe how you're funded and, and what you fund? Absolutely. So the Football Foundation was established 21 years ago, two weekends ago. So we're, we've just turned 21. It's a charity that was established by three parties, the, the, the FA, Football Association, the Premier League and the government. So three joint partners who wanted to co-invest uh, funds on an annual basis into delivering and improving in grassroots football facilities. So we all know about, and you know, go back to your memories, James, being in the playground, you probably had a really bad, muddy grass pitch next to your school, which was terrible to play on. So this kind of idea that our football facilities across this country aren't up to the standard we need is not a new story. The foundation was established 21 years ago to address that. And so every year, those three funding partners, the FA Premier League and government, they put money into the Football Foundation and the Football Foundation identifies good projects locally with some additional local match funding to improve facilities. So they're, by and large, that's capital grants to build artificial pitches, improve grass pitches, new clubhouses, fencing, floodlights, better drainage, bit of machinery to cut the grass, the whole kind of everything you would need to make the place to play better. And we've been going 21 years, as I say, we probably in that time delivered total grant value, if you include all the match fundings of upwards of £2 billion. Mm-hmm. Now, that's, that, I know that's a big eyebrow raise for, for our listeners, but it, in reality, it's probably not quite yet caught up anywhere to where we need to be because the state facilities in that time has continued to deteriorate through a mixture of increased demand, lack of supply, local authorities cutting their budgets for reasons we could we all know and could talk about, and, and also a, a historic deficit in artificial pitches in England compared to our international competitors, which is, hits us hard because of bad weather, like the weather you were describing in Scotland, James. So this big problem it hasn't gone away effectively, and, we, and the Football Foundation has tried really hard over that 21-year period to fix it, and has kind of made some progress, but not really transformational change, I would say. What we've done in the last couple of years is we've made a really big strategic change to our approach. So rather than waiting for recipients and clubs and charity groups or schools or councils to put their hand up and say, we've got an idea and a project, we can go to the Football Foundation. And, and you know, I'm sure you'll know this from your other conversations what tends to happen in those scenarios is it's well-organized, well-resourced. Communities are probably a little bit ahead of the game who are the ones who put their hands up. Therefore, you're not hitting where the need is the greatest. Mm. So for the last, just over 18 months, two years, we've conducted effectively a supply and demand mapping exercise for football in England. So that the result of that process has been we now have 318 local football facility plans. So... If you were to type in your postcode on our website, you would be able to pull up the plan for facility development in your local authority area. So when you aggregate those plans, we've got a shopping list. And that's a big transformational change because we now know exactly what we need to do to meet the needs of community grassroots football in this country. So we've got a shopping list. And we've got the resourcing, we've got the funding, which obviously is, you know, in this day and age is, a, is, is really significant as well, because we're very fortunate as a charity that we have the ongoing backing of the FA and the Premier League. We also have sustained support from Sport England 
2019, the Conservative government during the general election campaign made an additional promise of 550 million to go into our pot over the next nine years, building up to 2030. So it was all linked to a 2030 World Cup bid, but effectively what, what they did there is we had talked to them and we'd explained that we've got this shopping list. We know how much the bill's going to be over the next nine, 10 years to completely transform the landscape. We've got this amount from the FA, we've got this amount from the Premier League and this amount from Sporting England, and we can get this amount from local match funding, but there's a gap and that gap is 550 million over the next nine years. Will you come with us on the journey? Will you partner with us to transform the grassroots football landscape? And delighted to say, they said yes at the time, and it was in the manifesto in 2019. Subsequently, the Prime Minister has stood up and he's confirmed year one and year two of that. And we're hoping for years three to five to be confirmed in the spending review in October. So, you know, as I say, you know, I'm, I'm really aware, self-aware almost, we're, we're very fortunate at a charity, which we are, you know, we've got kind of two or three of the big building blocks of what you need, which is, we know exactly, you know, p- pretty much precisely what we need to go and do to fix our problem. And we have so far confirmed funding to help us achieve that. Now, that doesn't mean the hard bit isn't still to come in operationalizing and getting those projects out and getting communities to work with us, but we're in a pretty, pretty good place for the moment. It's Kenneth's turn to get the drinks in this week, so I'm going to let you know that you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Do More Good Pod. Or if you're a professional business person, you can find us on LinkedIn too. There's a website, domoregood.uk, packed full with episodes, blog posts, details of the team and a link to the newsletter for your VIP content. Coming back, two pina coladas and a lager for me. I just want to kind of rewind a little bit, you know, the way that you talk about your ambition, what you've got coming up over the next nine years, the scale of the the, the problem that you've got to, to try and fix how did you respond personally to that coming from the FA? And, and I'm just thinking if the culture of the Football Foundation was was very different because you've got a you've got a clear mission of, of what you want to achieve. Can you can you talk to us a little bit about the differences between those two organisations? I think the FA is a, <laughs> it's a kind of much criticised but actually really important part of the national establishment. I think mm. you know, it's quite easy. I would say it's a little bit like the NHS. Quite a lot of people will kind of criticize it in the general around but actually when you talk to them about their specific experience i'll say oh my local hospital is fantastic or actually yeah. I, my gp is great and that football's a little bit similar which is uh you know it's easy quite easy to say oh the fa useless but actually if you ask somebody about what their local grassroots club is like in their community they'll probably say you know give a really positive experience or so i think one of the challenges the fa has is it, it it's asked and it needs to do so much right we talked mm. earlier about euros so the FA is responsible for the performance of the England team. It's running a national stadium, but it's also responsible for development, a community participation development in every county in the country for, for the national sport. And it's responsible for developing generations of coaches and you know, tackling discrimination in, 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 a, in what's a really high profile sector. So this, and it's a regulator and it's always everything. So it's got to do so much. It's really yeah. hard. The Football Foundation is much easier to align behind a single strategic purpose, which is mm. transform communities and lives through living great pitches and facilities. You know, that that's one department. That's half of one department in the FA. So that, I think, is the difference. And I think, you know, as a, as a CEO coming in, I think that gives me the opportunity to, 
to kind of galvanize and crowd people and say, look, actually, what we've got to do is really hard. And the scale is transformation from, from however we've done it previously. But it's a single kind of core facet where we're all we're all the right people to do it. We're all the right experts. We're the, we are the people to do it. There's no, there's no contestability in that. So that gives us the opportunity to really, you know, really make ourselves famous for doing a great job in it. Mm. You're right. There's a huge, huge remit there for, for that organisation. Yeah, you and sometimes forget it, about that, don't you? Sorry. Yeah. Uh, you know, just as you were talking about it, then I was thinking, Robert, yeah, you know, you, you do often see the FA getting getting slammed in, in, in the press for whatever it is. But actually from a day to day, and as I said earlier, you know, going to my children's training tonight and knowing what the FA have put in to support me in my development as a coach. And it's just so multifaceted. So I, yeah, I can imagine Robert, when you were saying about coming into the foundation and actually having more of a singular focus, it must've been almost a way relieved in a way because it's like, right, we can actually all get behind this, but sorry, James, you were, you were saying. No, I was going to ask you a question, Kenneth, because you're so much closer to that grassroots. And just as you touched on just there, Mm. you see that in action every Wednesday night right you you know you go down to the kids so you've got your, your kids that are playing grassroots football they're going to be the stars in 2030 when we get that when we win that world cup bid um how do you see it you know what other than kind of heated seats and your monogrammed uh football boots what would you you know what do you see at, at grassroots level I, I think I, I actually picked up on something that you said Robert about how traditionally you know the groups that were more well organized could receive the funding I've only got involved a slight bit with my my local club from that level because we were looking at funding and I, and I saw that and because there was no one there who was able to kind of pull it together and really knew where to go so I'm really interested in the foundation and what you've said in terms of identifying well actually let's not just wait till who shouts loudest and who puts in the best pitch which actually you know a lot of the check, a lot of the charity sector is based on that who's who can present best for us who can who can tell us the best story and that means that when you're looking at a quality of of you know giving out gifts the, there's people that will get forgotten and there's there's areas of society that get forgotten and that's one of the big challenges so it it, it sounds great how did you identify that what was some of the the work that you did as a foundation to identify where where you need to to invest yeah. So I think I think there's a few things that kind of came together at the same moment. So firstly, it's like almost a kind of strategic challenge of what we just need to know what we need to do and the cost of it. So that was kind of, you know, pretty early question from me and others, which is actually what is the size of the task here? I think is, you know, probably the right way to frame that. And then mm-hmm. the second element I think came in at the same time, which is pitches and projects are outputs. We you know, we, we start rightly, we're starting to talk much more, think much more about outcomes. Mm. So it's all very well putting a pitch down, but who's actually using it and what difference are you making in that community? And it's only by properly mapping where those pitches are going to go, you start to see actually we're quite homogenous in the people who are using it because we're not being strategic about where we're placing them. So the outcomes aren't the diverse outcomes we want to see. So whether that be socioeconomic or ethnicity um, or gender or geographic, because we've done this planning exercise, we can actually have a much better handle on what we're delivering across those kind of characteristics. And therefore we can tailor our our investment and change our priorities, dial them up or down. If we're seeing trends that we don't like, or we want to over index on an outcome um, that our partners want to see, or we want to see in the future. 
I love that. It sounds like you can take yourself out of the situation. I love it when something so, that sounds so simple when someone says that, like the people that shout loudest to get the resource and the people that aren't shouting are, are, aren't able to do that and they probably need it more. It's, it's brilliant. It's a good tune because football is so much driven by volunteers. Mm. So, you know, so it's particularly true in, in grassroots football because there will be both a level of volunteering and a, if we're blunt, a capability in those volunteers, depending on what part of society they come from and where they are. And, and that's what was that, that was that disparity that needed kind of addressing, I guess. Mm. Yeah. To take you back to last weekend uh, and the big birthday, you know, how much of a celebration was that? Was it, what, were, what were you able to do? Did you have a Colin the Caterpillar cake and, you know, everyone around with a football cake? Uh, did it feel like a big milestone for you, 21? I love the reference to a Colin the Caterpillar. That we're very proud <laughs> of that in my family. So, um, but we, we didn't, we didn't actually. I'd say celebrations were muted. We we acknowledged it on social media and we were partners. My expression on the whole situation was much done, but still much more to do. And yeah. you know, focusing on that task ahead of us. That sounds a little bit. That sounds very similar to my 21st birthday. Actually, <laughs> something done, a lot to do. <laughs> not sure i've done much by my 21st <laughs> and then kind of the past couple of years obviously challenging for everybody you talk about it on the website about how pitches were closed and quiet obviously i'm an arsenal fan we're used to that but um how did you kind of manage that period and how was it for you so we took we took a decision i guess you'd say the first half of 2020 which was we had we had to prioritize whatever the game needed so we've got this big capital project that's going to take us nine years. We're going to need to change the, the facility landscape. But right then and there, what we actually needed to do was get money out to the game when it needed it. And it's in a time of kind of uncertainty. So we had several funds that were basically providing revenue grants to clubs at different levels and community groups at different levels to say, look, here's 2,000 here, here's 3,000 there. Keep your pitch up to date make sure you've got the right signage you might need for fans coming back. And it was just basically to help those clubs just navigate the changes and the uncertainty and the bumps that they were being asked to go through to keep football playing for that period of time. So, you know, that was probably the best part of £12 million that went out from us to do that. That's FA, Premier League and government money. So I think it's always really important that we kind of get that in the context, which is, we are, the, we are the facilitators and the enablers for those bodies to be investing in the sport. But that, that's across the probably 18-month period to keep, keep everybody where it needed to be to hopefully see what we're going to see in the next few weeks and already begun to see, which is the game springing back to life for a new season and hopefully not too many kids at the bottom age groups having lost the habit. Kenneth's taking his kids tonight to football and enjoying it. Mm. And Robert, just going back to the to the last 12, 18 months, and obviously you came into the to the role in, in 2020. Was I think it was it just so it was the first week, April the first I started, which was I think five days after the first lockdown. So nice. I, yes, I had a long period of time where I had I'd not been to the office and I'd not met any of the team, which mm. was in itself kind of quite an interesting challenge. Yeah, I was going to say to you, what as, as a leader of an organisation, I mean, the foundation, you know, as we talked about, hundreds of millions of pounds going out every year. How have you found that transition and how have you had to adapt your style, do you think, over the last sort of 12, 18 months, particularly coming new into the position? I guess I don't claim to have any great insights more than anybody else who's kind of had to just work their way as they go through this. 
I think for me, and it would actually be true even if we were normal working and not remote, it's about over-communicating. So I'm a very big believer in telling the story, really open and transparent, trying to you know get everybody in the organisation to really understand the purpose, what we're trying to achieve, how we're trying to achieve it, their role within that. So that, that, that for me would always be important. Finding ways to do that in a remote setting was really hard. There's only so many Zoom calls you can do where you can't actually see the faces looking back at you and without the kind of the kind of eye contact and connectivity that you get in in person, it's hard to get engagement. But yes, lots of, lots of communication, uh, lots of transparency. And I think we're really fortunate because we've got a great team who care about the purpose of what we're trying to do. So you know, we'll go the extra mile and, and we'll continue to work really hard in difficult circumstances because they know the value of it at the end. And lots of organisations probably don't have that mm. and have had, probably had to work even harder to keep people kind of focused and engaged in this in this period yeah we're beginning to go back to well it's not normal because it's it's new behaviors and it's 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 a complete change and we've all adapted over the past year to this and now we're changing our behaviors again but we're we're beginning to find our way let's say into into how we do that how about you for for the next year what do you what do you hope to see so everyone likes a corporate mission so we have three parts to ask we're going to deliver, so we're going to continue to deliver, deliver our project called Pipeline. We're going to continue to Im- improve the organisation. It was a big kind of theme of mine over the last 18 months was actually can we simplify and improve what we do a little bit? Because, you know, organisations as they evolve, they just get a little bit unnecessarily complicated. And when you come in with new eyes, it's a good opportunity just to strip things back. Do we need to do that? Can we make that a little bit better? So... Uh, that the sense of improvement is still really important for me. We've got a new grant management system, which is like our new IT infrastructure that's that's being updated as we speak. Everybody loves a big IT infrastructure project, of course. So, so that would be a big thing, making sure that lands safely, I guess would be the word I'd use. And then the third element, which is I think the biggest challenge we've got in this next 12 months, is what I'm calling build, which is this new money is going to come in from the government and it really kicks in next financial year we've got to build so we can deliver at that scale. So that's going to mean potentially more staff, more systems with greater capacity and capability. We need a lot more projects at the front end of our grant process going into the pipeline so we can be committing funds straight away from next May. So they're kind of three core themes of what next 12 months looks like. I think to what you said there, I think we'll be more in the office definitely, but probably not completely, but we are a very remote team anyway because we're obviously out and about on sites assessing projects meeting with clubs and local authorities and community groups all the time so as much as it's great to have the team in the office and that's great for culture and engagement actually the more focus we can have in talking to applicants out there is probably just as important for us as well Mm. actually you touched on it there Robert one question as you were talking is how much public engagement do you do as an organization around your mission and objectives so we're very focused on engaging on uh, what I would call our kind of core customer audience. So we really want to target the potential applicants at the clubs, the local authorities, the volunteer organisations, the people who could come to us to get support. Mm. Um, I think what we try and do in terms of a kind of much more broader public communication, if you like, is we try and attribute as much as we can back to our funding partners. Right. Because ultimately, ultimately they're, they're putting the investment into us. So 
what what we want is for the FA and the Premier League and Sport England and the government to get the credit for investing on, in those great facilities. So, you know, and it, you, you asked me what, what are the differences being FA Football Foundation. Uh, when I used to be on the FA, people used to say to me, why doesn't the FA invest in grassroots facilities like the Football Foundation does? And you'd be like, well, <laughs> we are. We are the Football Foundation. It's, um, so it's really important in the foundation. We don't kind of facilitate that misconception We've got to do everything we can to ensure the attribution goes to the the three funding partners because they want yes they want great outcomes and great outputs but you know not only but they also want reputational benefit from the money they're putting in as well. Mm. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. But what's what's excites you about the the next twelve months or eighteen months, Robert? What what's really kind of you know you come into the virtual office or, or back in to see staff? You know what's what's really kind of lighting your fire at the moment about about the organisation and in your role? I, I feel. I was going to reach for your climbing wall analogy there, James. I feel with it. It's yours. You can have it. You can have it. I feel like we're at the bottom of the wall, but we're. I've I've done all my training and I've got all my energy, and we've got a great team who are about to climb the wall together and make a real difference. That's terrible, isn't it? Sorry. Um, (laughs) It's it's, it's better than better than one I had. So that's fine. It's it's the best one of the climbing analogies we've had this evening. So to to, to the question from Stanley seriously, Kenneth. The, the opportunity to really hit scale, mm. I think. And, and actually, with scale will come transformation. And that's something over the next, you know, two to five years, I'm hoping that everyone's really going to feel and see. And with that transformation, we're going to see great playing services. And, and actually, one thing we haven't talked about is 30% of what we do is multi-sport. So that this isn't just football. We, are, we deliver football projects but 30 to 40% of those have to deliver multi-sport outcomes. So by the time we get through this nine-year period, you know, what, what I'm hoping for is a real transformation in how people experience community and grassroots sport. Amazing. I'm, Brilliant. I'm kind of at the beginning of that today. We're at the bottom yeah. of the wall. Yeah, the bottom, <laughs> of the bottom of the wall or the boulder, whichever one it is. Robert, thank you so much. I mean, it's really interesting because as, as it, I think coming into this, when we, you know, we we both kind of saw the Football Foundation and obviously credit to Ruth for kind of getting in touch and, and setting it up. You know, we'd all, we both heard of the organisation, understood probably a little bit about what you do, but I think you've just made it so clear about what your ambition is as an organisation, how you're funded, uh, you know, what the impact that you're trying to have. So, you know, wish you lots of luck and I'm sure you'll be, be hugely successful in it. But we're not going to let you go straight away. We've got some quick fire questions, Robert, that we just drop in at the end. Oh, look, there's the, there the face of worry uh, that just came across. But luckily, <laughs> when, is... <laughs> we're not video recording this, so uh, no one will see that. But yeah, James, do you want to go with the first one? Yes, we'll do. So if you could transport back in time and meet your 20-year-old self, what piece of advice would you give and why? Listen more. Oh, we haven't had that one. No. Super quite apt for a podcast as well. Can you elaborate? I think it's taken me a long time through my career to realise that being desperate to communicate what I know and show it is only half, if if at all, half of what you actually need to be doing. And I think that the the more you get into positions of leadership, the more you realise you need to listen more and communicate less, or, or rather give your views less. Amazing. That's great. That's a great wow. point. Yeah, love that one. Slightly easier one, hopefully. Can you tell us about one life hack or a productivity tool or a habit or a skill or something that you've taught yourself recently that you think everybody needs to know about? (laughs) 
I'm interested in what came to mind straight away with that made you laugh then because because <laughs> I started down one line of thought and then I thought that's not really something I could tell people that everyone to do so it's quite <laughs> personal <laughs> there's no going, one else listening it's fine <laughs> I, I, yeah so it's not a kind of thing I, w- I think is replicable mm. but I think for me it's understand and know when you're at your most kind of salient and have the most clarity of thought and capture it. So weirdly for me, I, ha- I tend to have my best thoughts between getting out of bed and getting in the shower. And I don't know whether it's because like, you know, the brain's been working overnight or something and it all pops into your head. And so for me, the, the hack is make sure I'm switched on to capturing what it is I've just thought about in the shower, basically. Yeah. But I'm not sure that's replicable for everybody. So um, Ideas don't necessarily come to you in a meeting room when you tell everyone let's be creative what's our next big idea it comes to you in the shower when you can't when you do write something down and it gets washed away or you know it's, it's those periods of time when you're not necessarily thinking moment, about maybe it's sort of something like that isn't it yeah yeah it's almost like because i have i i think a few years ago i was found that you know before going to sleep it was when the ideas were coming and kind of did that notebook notebook by yeah. the bed kind of trick just to say right okay i've got to scribble this down because it's but yeah i think there's a it's a good point in there they usually just text me a little, little good night <laughs> yeah, message, exactly. don't you? Yeah. yeah. I'm in the shower and... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've had an idea. Yeah. Go on then, James. Uh, last final one. question for you. As a podcast that is focused around people doing more good, uh, what's your favourite story or inspiring individual that you have met on your journey or recently who has done something good for others? One of the disappointments for me in my role, actually, is I haven't been able to get out a lot mm. to me. But I went to Chessington and Hook Football Club quite recently. And I won't use their names, but there was a couple there who were volunteers who basically did everything. And it was one of those really inspirational, they're the club chair, they picked the first team, run the first team, organised the facility, run the facility, do the kids training, cook the meal. And they were just fantastic. And they did all the applications to the Football Foundation. And, and for me, it was a good reality check around Yes, this is brilliant because these are the people who really need help and we should be helping. But also the, the challenge back the other way, am I making their life harder or easier in the process that we're asking them to go through? That was an interesting thought because they were, you know, they deserved all the all the good we could throw their way. Yeah. Shout out to all of those volunteers. I know there's there's loads at every club that you go to. I mean, just thinking of my friend of mine is the chairman of, of the club here and you know he's he's constantly on the phone with people from the village people communicating things he does absolutely everything and it, a lot of it goes unseen and, and unrecognized it's amazing and, and unthanked by the way it's yeah. thanked yeah. yeah 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 exactly exactly well look robert we'll, we'll wrap it up there and let you go thank you so much for your time really appreciate it. is there any final thought or if anyone wants to reach out to you or hear more where can they where can they go well, I'd certainly encourage people to go to the Football Foundation website and put in their postcode and look at their local football facility plan. Have a look where we're trying to do work in your area. And if you want to get involved with the, the club or the community group that's got a project coming their way, I'm sure they'd be delighted to get more support. That'd be great. Okay, brilliant. James, any final thoughts? No, just a lot of it resonated really with the podcast, that reaching scale, big <laughs> IT projects. And getting back in the office, we must do one of these in the pub again soon, Kenny. That's it, Robert. We'll do we'll do episode two in the pub when we can uh, finally get back there. All right, guys, take take care. Thanks a lot, guys. Speak soon. Cheers. Thanks a lot. Just before we go, can we ask a favour? 
If you've enjoyed this episode and you've made it this far after all, and you want to help us reach more people and attract more guests, then we'd love a review on iTunes. Alternatively, if you haven't got anything nice to say, then say it in an email. Get in touch at contact at domoregood.uk and let us know how we can improve the show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another story of someone doing more good.